Uh, Paul, cool. We're back today with Pope Francis Generation, and today we're talking about the common good and uh, why that topic. Yeah, so it is one of the main principles of Catholic social teaching, and uh, this season we're going through four main principles, the dignity of the human person, the common good, subsidiarity, and solidarity. So uh, this is the next one on the list, and one that, um, at least for uh, uh, American Catholics, uh, mm -hmm. may be the most challenging. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Okay, let's get into it all. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching who feel like they might not belong in the church anymore and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the charisma, the doctrine of theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. So um, how does that work, you know, with this concept of the common good? Maybe we should start by trying to define that because it seems to be in tension with the infinite dignity of every individual. So take yes. it away. So, so I think you're right to point out that a uh, on on first look, like you know, that top layer examination, it seems like the common good um, can be intentioned with the individual dignity of every person. But in reality, the common good is simply the uh, logical conclusion of the principle of the dignity of every human person, because um, if you take that seriously, like we've talked about that every human being has infinite dignity. Well, if every human being has infinite dignity, then there's something about uh, the social good that's important. Um, there's something mm -hmm. about us having a responsibility to other people uh, that's important. So um, responsibility is gonna be, I think the key word for this topic. Um, mm -hmm. This idea that I have a responsibility to my brother, to my neighbor, is kind of the principle that underpins this. Okay, so maybe, well, where do you want to start then? Because I'm I'm looking now for a your definition then, or or the definition of what common good uh, then means and kind of where it ends. Yeah, I think I want to I think I want to work up to a definition. I want to lay some groundwork okay. first. Um, so so let's uh, Catholicism. Christianity is opposed to individualism. Um, and that's perhaps what makes this principle most difficult for, or difficult for American Catholics, is that we have a very... To, to define individualism very briefly would be... Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that this idea that um, uh, the human individual uh, can be self-sufficient, that doesn't need and doesn't have a responsibility towards others. Right. That community living or relationship is not the foundation of, of human living, but the atomic atomized sort of individual string of atoms. Every person is an individual thing. Correct. So okay. in Christianity, we believe like when we profess that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, what we're saying is that we believe that every human being is made in the image and likeness, not of an individual. We're Christians. We're not monotheistic. We mm -hmm. believe in a Trinitarian God. Mm -hmm. So we believe that human beings at their very core are made in the image and likeness of a community of three persons. Mm -hmm. Three persons that are united, bounded, they're very, the, the, the very nature of what they are 
mm-hmm. is love. We're made in the image and likeness of a God who is lover, a God who is beloved, and a God who is love exchanged. So in the Fratelli Tutti, and the, and the Pope is quoting the Second Vatican Council here, mm-hmm. uh, the Pope says, human beings are so made that they cannot live, develop, and find fulfillment except in the sincere gift of self to others. Nor can they fully know themselves apart from an, an encounter with other persons. I communicate effectively with myself only insofar as I communicate with others. No one can experience the true beauty of life without relating to others, without having real faces to love. So what the Pope Mm. is getting at here is we're made in the image and likeness of a community of persons in a loving relationship. Therefore, we only have fulfillment. We only have flourishing when we're in loving relationships with Mm. others. Um, which leads to then this idea of responsibility, right? Um, we recognize just from a casual examination that we're dependent on others. Mm-hmm. I didn't bring myself into existence. I had no choice in that matter, right? And there was nothing I could do to bring myself into existence. But not just that. Um, I didn't raise myself. I didn't uh, provide for myself. I didn't educate myself. I was dependent on others for all of that. And even now, as as the pandemic made made really clear for a lot of people, living in isolation, even as fully developed adults, does not lead to human flourishing. Mm -hmm. I'm radically dependent on others. Mm -hmm. But if I'm radically dependent on the human community, Mm. but every individual in the human community is also dependent, then it's not just dependence, it's interdependence. Right. We are radically interdependent on each other. Mm-hmm. And this is why the church teaches that um, it is the family and not the individual that's the foundational building block of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something about society that's built into who we are. So the catechism says the human person needs to live in society. Society is not for the human person an extraneous addition but rather a requirement of his nature. We are social beings at our very core. Mm-hmm. Just because I exist, the community owes me things. And just mm-hmm. because I exist, I have a responsibility to the community. I owe mm-hmm. them things. Mm-hmm. This is a Christian anthropology, which is totally in opposition to anything that looks like individualism, than anything that mm-hmm. says, I just have to care about me and my own. And if everyone just cares about me and my own, then, you know, everyone will be fine. The church says we can't accept that. Just in those two phrases, you've, I mean, outlined two massive narratives that that run through the world. Um, But in in bringing them together, it creates, it does create a new idea. They cannot be lived in isolation. Um, That's, that's very intriguing. I like the way that you put that. Keep going. Yeah. I think, I think you've shared in, uh before in our conversations as well you've talked about how there's this idea within the american culture with american ethos of like i'm gonna get me and my family and we're gonna get ourselves a you know a mule and a wagon and go off into the into the frontier and be Mm self-sufficient we have this we have this we have put self-sufficiency on a pedestal Mm. like what do we want we want self-sufficiency we need to be able to provide for ourselves, make ourselves secure without reliance on others. 
And if everyone does that, then the community will be just fine, right? This is the essence of something like a libertarianism. It says, well, if everyone just looks out for their own best interests, then society will do great. Um, but that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. I want to see where you're going with this. So um, we have a temptation, I believe, because of because of sin, because of our fallen nature, a temptation to individualism, mm-hmm. um, to think that I don't need others, to think that I can just I can simply be concerned about my own needs and that that's sufficient. Um, but even in the scriptural tradition, God has always warned his people against individualism, right? In, in one sense, even God doesn't save individuals in scripture. Mm-hmm. He saves groups. Like he's always making groups. He's saying, Abraham, you and your whole family, all of your descendants come, right? Isaac, you and your whole family, Jacob, you and your whole family. And then he's bringing people into the community of his people mm-hmm. um, in order to save them. And then when you see Jesus, what's he do? He creates a group of 12 people and then hundreds of disciples on top of that. And he's like bringing, gathering people into the group. Mm -hmm. Um, God relates to us personally, yes. But there's an element of God's relationship with us that is also communal, right? Right. We see this throughout scripture. Um, And then we see within scripture as well, this... um, these, when we talked about this when we did our introduction to Catholic social teaching, now, throughout the Old Testament, the one of the core commands that God gives his people, right? He gives them the commands, don't commit idolatry, um, don't marry foreign women and be tempted to idolatry. But then a- after idolatry, it's remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, that you were once vulnerable and oppressed. Mm-hmm. And that should govern how you treat, that remembrance of how you were treated should govern how you treat the vulnerable and the oppressed in your own community. So there's this these four groups of people that are repeated throughout the Old Testament. Um, I've heard some scholars call them the quartet of the vulnerable, mm-hmm. the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. So, And these are intentional, these four groups. So the widow in a patriarchal system is vulnerable in a patriarchal society. Like she doesn't have this connection to power and influence in society. Mm-hmm. Not just power and influence, but even security, right? Right. Or t- autonomy. It doesn't, I mean, you can swap out some of the words, but but yeah. Yeah. And the orphan as well. Like they've lost this connection to security um, right. within, in, within society. Um, and then the poor and then the foreigner. Um, these are people whose society doesn't, naturally or automatically take into consideration. Right. So what does the church say? Or what does God say to his people? You need to take them into consideration. Right. You need to make them your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and he judges his people by whether or not they commit idolatry and by how they treat the vulnerable and the oppressed. So when you hear in the... Uh, in the prophetic books and the prophets exhorting the kings and exhorting the people of Israel mm-hmm. to come back to the covenant, they say, stop the idolatry. And they say, stop treating the poor and the widow and the foreigner with contempt. 
and with injustice. Give them a preferential treatment that the Lord wants you to give them. <laughs> so we see this, this social morality, this social ethic that runs counter to individualism throughout mm -hmm. uh, the whole the Old Testament. And again, that's rooted in this anthropology, this idea of the human person that we're made in the image and likeness of a community um, and that we are social by nature. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to uh, an understanding of the common good directly then. So the, the compendium for the social doctrine of the church um, says this, the principle of the common good to which every aspect of social life must be related if it is to attain its fullest meeting stems from the dignity, unity, and equality of all people. So what the church is saying here is that these, this principle of the universal dignity, the infinite dignity of every human person, mm -hmm. um, leads to the common good, right? That they're not in opposition to each other. The common good builds off of this. The, mm -hmm. the compendium continues. According to its prim primary and broadly accepted sense, the common good indicates the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as in individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. So it's, so it's this idea that every human person in every human community is owed the means to live a fulfilled life. So and the church breaks that down even more. So um, St. John, uh, Pope St. John the 23rd, in his encyclical, um, you know, Pachamenteris says this, man has the right to live. He has the right to bodily integrity and to the means necessary for the proper development of life. So, right, these are the social conditions necessary um, to flourish. Those are, he says, food, clothing, shelter, medical care, rest, and finally, the necessary social services. In consequence, man has the right to be looked after in the event of ill health, disability, widowhood, old age, uh, unemployment, or whenever through no fault of his own, he is deprived of the means of livelihood. What the church is saying here is that every human person, because they have infinite dignity, is owed simply because they exist. Food, clothing, health care, work, shelter, education, the minimal things required to live a life of flourishing. My goodness, that's, I mean, it's just beautiful. And, and my heart sings hearing that, but it just flies in the face of so many narratives I was yep. raised in growing up in the sense of it's up to you to, you know, procure and ensure all of this stuff for yourself. Nobody else owes this to you. And it's, wow. Now, to be clear here, it's not saying that everyone is owed the capacity to buy a new vehicle. Right, right. It's saying that everyone is owed the minimum requirements to live a life of flourishing. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, they owe, are owed the minimum requirements to develop as a human being. They are not owed a vacation home. Right. They're not necessarily owed the ability to even take a vacation. 
but everyone is owed food, shelter, healthcare, education, mm -hmm. um, rest, right? People shouldn't mm -hmm. have to work 70, 80, 100 hours a week in order to get these things. They're owed mm -hmm. rest. Um, everyone is owed that. So a lot of times, I mean, <laughs> there may be listeners who hear this and they think something like communism. And the church isn't saying that. It's not saying everyone ought to have the same amount. Mm -hmm. It's not saying people can't have more than this. Mm -hmm. It's saying everyone's owed this. Mm -hmm. This minimum amount. Right. And that's where there's that, as we, as we started with, there's that tension of you may need these things, but then it's, how do you say this? It's like you, you partake in them and also have uh, this, as you said, this responsibility to the rest of your community to take more than uh, in a way that would deprive somebody else yep. uh, is then an injustice. So there's that, um, yes, you need, we need things, but then we also have to live in reciprocation with whatever our community is, whether local or immediate or, or at large. Yeah. So this ties into um, a key doctrine within the, the principle of the common good is the church's teaching on the universal destination of goods. Mm -hmm. um, and this goes back to, again, we talked about this in um, our introduction podcast for this season. These are the quotes from the early church fathers that say, if you have um, food in your cupboard that you're not using, it belongs to the person who doesn't have any food. Um, if you have excess wealth, it belongs to the poor person in your neighborhood. Not you should you should you should consider giving it to them, but rather you're stealing by not giving it to them. This is the language of the church fathers. Um, so so here's some quotes that I want to share within this tradition. So this first one is from Gaudium et Spes. So this is from Vatican II. God destined the earth and all it contains for all men and all peoples so that all created things would be shared fairly by all mankind under the guidance of justice tempered by charity. God destined the earth for all people. The goods of the earth are for all people. Mm -hmm. um, this next passage is from uh, Pope Francis's encyclical Fratelli Tutti. He says this, the Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as an as absolute or inviolable and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property the right to private property can only be considered a secondary natural right that's derived from the principle of the universal destination of created goods the right of some to free enterprise the pope continues the right of some to free enterprise or to market freedom cannot supersede the rights of peoples and the dignity of the poor or for that matter, respect for the nat for natural environment. For if we make something our own, it is only to administer it for the good of all. So I want to unpack this. Mm -hmm. On that first layer of insight, it seems like, again, that there's a conflict here. There's a conflict between the universal destination of human goods and the right to private property. Mm -hmm. And the church is saying, in fact, there is no conflict. What it is saying, though, is there is a hierarchy. So the foundational principle, the foundational doctrine is that all the goods of the earth are created for the flourishing and use of all people, the universal destination of goods. 
then the church in its reflection on human nature and um you know human human relationships it's then articulated a secondary right built from that first right built from that first principle of private property so thomas aquinas talks about it like this um he essentially it's a pragmatic right where he's like and you know these are all my words to, from his ideas. He's like, you know that community garden that everyone's responsible for and therefore nobody's responsible for? See how that doesn't work that well? Mm-hmm. But if we all have our own gardens that we're responsible for, mm-hmm. they flourish. Is there some about human nature where like, I take responsibility for my thing and I care for it mm-hmm. and I invest in it? Mm-hmm. Then I take the goods of the earth and I develop them and I make mm-hmm. them greater. I make them better. Right. So I have the right to do that. I have the right to private property, but I don't have the right to use my property however I want Mm -hmm. because my property must be used for the good of all. As the Pope, as the Pope said, if we make something our own, it is only to administer it for the good of all. So if I take my garden and it flourishes and it's more food than my family needs, I'm obligated to give the extra to those in the community Mm -hmm. who need food. So I have the right to private property. The church is clear about this. And this is one of the reasons the church opposes communism. It's because communism rejects private property. Mm-hmm. I have the right to private property, but I do, I do not have the right to use my property however I want. Private property is simply the means by which the church teaches that human beings can develop the goods of the earth, the created goods of the earth, mm-hmm. and grow them mm-hmm. and produce them so that they can be shared with all people. I'm seeing an extension of an idea here where you mentioned earlier the right to bodily integrity. And um, I'm reading some other books right now that are talking about like philosophy of thinking and how humans think about themselves and so on. It's interesting stuff. And one of the points the author is making is that uh, our home, our vehicle, when we sit in it, uh, our garden, it becomes an extension of us. It becomes a part of our body. we take it into us as a part of our identity. Like when somebody hits your car, you don't think they hit my car. You think they hit me. In those moments when you're sitting, you're in communion with that vehicle. You need it to, to, to function. You need to be able to count on it. And you, you think of it as an extension. Of yeah, or, or when someone breaks into your home, you feel personally violated. Violated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So if that's the case, then the same response, the same... Um, role that our own bodies take for us, where again, that same thing of, like you said, we, we need to maintain a sense of autonomy and also a sense of relationship and both need to be done together. And if we extend that sense of our identity to our things, then there's also that same uh, duality that has to then also also happen for human beings to live in relationship and for our, our, our objects or for our items to remain individualist um uh it's an uh, inconsistent yeah an inconsistent idea the goods of the earth are for the whole human community they're for like this relational sense they're not for me as an individual Mm -hmm. yeah um so in this in within this principle of the universal destination of goods then there's this idea and this has been this was articulated by thomas aquinas this was articulated in uh, the Second Vatican Council, and it's, this example is used in, in these different sources. If someone, so let's say there's uh, a man and their child, 
and they're homeless and they don't have the means to eat and they go into a grocery store and they steal a loaf of bread for sustenance. Mm -hmm. The church says they're not actually stealing. It doesn't say, well, because they're hungry, they're not culpable of stealing. No, it's saying actually that stealing has never happened in the first place because they were owed that loaf of bread to begin with. Mm -hmm. Because they're owed the, the means to survive to begin with. Mm -hmm. So them taking it, they are just taking what's already theirs. Right. This is what fascinates me about, you know, when we turn this into storytelling, you get something like Robin Hood and he's been mangled or his that idea of what he's standing up for has been mangled all kinds of ways and retold all kinds of ways. What I see from this vantage point is not, we're going to paint as something good what is technically a social problem cast from this vantage point it's like no this is a reassertion of a human right against those who are collapsing goods into black holes that the rest of humanity can't access and yep. so it's a right to stand up and push back against that yeah it's not it's not theft it's an exercise of my human right no. uh, if i take food because i'm starving yeah yeah. So then um, let's draw this out a little bit more. I want to share some of these passages from the church fathers that we shared a few weeks ago, and then bring in some passages from contemporary popes as well. Mm -hmm. So this is from St. Ambrose from the fourth century. He says this, you are not making a gift of what is yours to the poor man, but you are giving him back what is his. You have been appropriating things that are meant to be for the common use of everyone. The earth belongs to everyone, not to the rich. So that was St. Ambrose. The, this next one is St. John Chrysostom, also in the fourth century. Not to share our wealth with the poor is to rob them and to take away their livelihood. The riches we possess are not our own, but theirs as well. I think it's also um, interesting to observe these discussions are certainly being directed at the wealthy young men in scripture. It's like, Lord, what should I do to be saved? It's like these discussions are happening to that level of you who, who do have the means and and not all of us i think maybe listening to this show don't think of ourselves as that person we might be but it, these definitely are oriented to the people who have who have more than is sufficient for human thriving yeah so there's something about here if if these sting and these are very direct and sharp statements if these sting they sting those who potentially have access well if you are poor, these are good news. It's profoundly yeah. good news. It's like Mary's Magnificat, where she says, mm -hmm. God will throw down the powerful and lift up the lowly. Mm -hmm. The hungry will be filled with good things and the rich will be sent empty away. If you are rich, that's, that's a terrible statement. But if you are poor and hungry, what great news, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, you will be filled. Um, so the next is from St. Gregory the Great. This is the the 7th century. When we provide the needy with their basic needs, we are giving them what belongs to them, not to us. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to jump ahead. So this is Pope Paul VI in 1967. No one may appropriate surplus goods solely for his own private use when others lack the bare necessities of life. And the Pope Francis in Fratelli Tutti, if one person lacks what is necessary to live with dignity, it is because another person is detaining it from them. There was a really good video. Um, George Peterson 
put out maybe a year ago now as of this recording and he was interviewing somebody who was looking at census and status and um statistics and so on and the guy went and wrote a book that was supposed to be like a coffee table book for everybody and stuff and just pointing out how much better the world is versus 200 years ago how the human living conditions have improved have changed contrary to a ton of narratives but it's like this all of this is publicly available data from i don't know different organizations and a lot of it was was pretty mind-blowing these 10 massive stats that were presented and a lot of them were uh how much wealthier the average human is especially of course in the first world um and the capacity to produce and to sustain and to nourish and to provide for the human family has so radically changed in the last 200 years it's like a dream stage of human living compared to 400 500 years ago in terms of health and, and extension of life and the ability to produce you know food and so on so that point there from the holy father the fact that you are alive and you are without a specific dignity then at this stage in human living it is absolutely because somebody else is withholding it in some way yeah and and we've already recorded this interview but it's going to be published after this one we we talked with the economist tony Annette, and we've talked about this where he's done the research um looking at um like global wealth and global Mm -hmm. issues and what is the cost of feeding everyone in the world versus what is the cost that we spend on the military or the cost Mm -hmm. of that billionaires have Mm -hmm. in offshore funds, Mm -hmm. right? It's a matter of will. It's not a matter of ability, right? Right. We can provide these things. We just don't have the will to. Um, So yeah, if, if someone lacks what they need to live, it's because someone else is detaining it from them. Mm -hmm. um so i want to break this out a little bit more what does this mean on a uh like individual moral Mm -hmm. level so um in 1891 pope leo uh the 13th wrote rerum novarum which is considered the first uh, modern social encyclical and he he breaks it out this way he says he says that when what necessity demands has been supplied and one standing fairly taken thought for it becomes a duty to give to the indignant out of what remains over. Sorry, that's a f- fancy word. I'm looking at the notes. Indigent? Um, what does indigent mean? Those, I assume it means those who have not or something. Um, the poor, yeah. yeah. Or those who have less. So he's articulating um, three tiers of wealth. Mm-hmm. So the, f- the first is the goods of the earth that someone needs to survive, right? Our, our, our needs are necessities. This is the common good, and this is what everyone is owed. <laughs> the second tier is um, where he says one standing is, is, is fairly taken thought for, one's vocation, one state in life. Mm-hmm. This is a lot more uh, gray, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what I need as someone living in a small town in the Midwest with, with four kids, is different than when someone uh, than what someone with four kids may need to live in New York City, right? Um, likewise, someone in living in my t- same town who's single, mm-hmm. what they need to live is different than what I need to live as someone who has four kids. Mm-hmm. Also, um, my job 
I don't. <laughs> Unless I'm going to a funeral or a wedding, I never need to wear a suit and tie. But if I were um, a lawyer, I would need a closet of, of suits to, to wear for my job, right? Mm -hmm. If I am a um, ambassador or a political figure um, or the head of a company, like I, I don't just represent myself. Mm -hmm. I, I may need um, attire. I may need vehicles. I may need to present myself in a way to fairly mm -hmm. represent uh, the organization or state or whoever that I represent. Right. Right. So um, there's a lot of gray area in here mm -hmm. about what is what is necessary for my state in life for my vocation. Um, and then the third tier, so that's the second tier. The third tier is everything else, everything that's left over. Mm -hmm. And everything that's left over belongs to those who do not have enough in the first two tiers. Mm -hmm. And to be clear here, because the church is clear here, giving away that excess and distributing it to those who don't have enough is a matter of justice and not a matter of personal charity. Mm-hmm. And Pope Benedict teaches that we can't even talk about charity until we've met the demands of justice in the first place. I am mm -hmm. not being charitable by giving away my excess wealth. Actually, I'm stealing by possessing my excess wealth. If, if someone were to go to Best Buy and steal a TV, they're not being charitable by bringing the TV back. <laughs> right? Right. Or donating it again to a... Uh, a family who doesn't have one. <laughs> um, I'm not being charitable by giving back to someone what's already owed to them, mm -hmm. what I've already stolen from them. It's a matter of justice. It's not a matter of charity. And this is important once we get to, in a few minutes, we'll talk about what's, what's the church say the role of the state is in this. Mm -hmm. The role of the state looks different when we're talking about matters of justice versus matters of personal charity. Mm -hmm. Um, this is really difficult teaching. Um, this goes against uh, everything I've understood of Western or American culture and Western or American economics, or even the questions of like, what does a flourishing life look like? Mm -hmm. Where is happiness rooted? Um, what should be our goals in life? collecting excess stuff. Mm -hmm. This materialism is so much a part of our culture. And the, and the church is not just saying that's not good for you. It is saying that's not good for you. But it's saying actually that that just that that's that accumulating excess stuff is theft. That it's that's harmful to others to the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so to move on then to talk about what, uh, a little bit of the role of the state here, because this is where uh, often when I have conversations about this, um, this teaching is hard to hear. But I've talked to a lot of people who can get to this part of the teaching and they're like, yeah, I'm on board with this. Like I need to do the discernment to figure out what is my excess wealth? Um, what isn't, what are my responsibilities? But then once we start talking about the role of the state, then they're like, mm, I don't know if I like that. 
that sounds like communism. So let's kind of wade into that. Okay. So first of all, the Catholic tradition is not at all suspicious of politics or government. It sees government as necessary for bringing about the common good. So this is from the compendium. The responsibility for attaining the common good, besides falling to the individual persons, belongs also to the state. So it is not enough that individuals be concerned about what's their responsibility of giving away their excess wealth, of redistributing their excess wealth. But this responsibility also falls to the state. Since, the, the compendium continues, since the common good is the reason that the, that the political authority exists in the first place. The, the individual person, the family, or intermediate groups. Now, by intermediate groups, the church means like um, social groups, uh, parishes, your Knights of Columbus, your Lions Club, your whatever, like just groups of people that aren't the state and that aren't the individual, aren't the family. Okay. The, the person, the family, or intermediate groups are not able to achieve their full development by themselves um, in order to live a truly human life. Hence the necessity of political institutions, the purpose of which is to make available to persons the necessary material, cultural, moral, and spiritual goods. The goal of life in society is, in fact, the historically attainable common good. So there's a few things I want to I want to break down here. Um, the state exists, government exists in order to attain the common good. The common good, like we've said, is everyone has enough, has food, shelter, healthcare, education, etc., in order to live a life of flourishing. What's the role of government? To make sure everyone has those things. Okay. And then the church says, this goal is in fact historically attainable. This is not a utopia the church is talking about. It's saying this is something we can actually do in this world. This is not pie in the sky. This is, we can do it. And I would add, if we can do it, and we haven't, that that's a profound injustice. So the Catechism says that there are three elements to the common good. The first is that the common good presupposes that society respects the fundamental and inalienable rights of the human person, in particular, the right to act according to one's conscience as well as religious liberty. So the state's pursuit or society's pursuit of the common good can't ever violate the individual rights and dignity of each human person. It must mm -hmm. respect that and, and really be built off of that, like we've talked about. Second, uh, the second element of the common good, the catechism says, is that it requires that those in authority guarantee that every person has what they need to develop and flourish specifically. And it lists these things again, food, clothing, health, work, education, culture, suitable information, the right to establish a family and so on. So, and this is where it gets, again, this is where I start to lose people. Mm -hmm. uh, the church also says that the government has not just the authority, but the duty, the responsibility 
to regulate the use of private property and to even redistribute private property for the sake of the common good, to mm -hmm. redistribute some people's excess wealth so that so that everyone can have what they need to survive. So I, I want to share two quotes here. The first is from the Catechism. It says that political authority has the right and duty to regulate the legitimate exercise of the right to ownership for the sake of the common good. And then from the Compendium, authentic economic well-being is pursued also by means of suitable social policies for the redistribution of income, which taking, taking general con conditions into account looks at merit as well as the need of each citizen. So the government has not just the authority, but the obligation, the duty, the responsibility to redistribute excess wealth to those who mm -hmm. don't have enough to live. This is what the church teaches. Like this is not gray. This is not mm -hmm. questionable church teaching. This is not like, you know, a liberal or progressive reading of church teaching. Mm -hmm. This is what the church says. I have wish I disagreed with you just so that there could be more conversation here. <laughs> but it it really it flows from the principles. I mean, it's an extension of these principles, and especially if the the sense of everyone is equal in in the eyes of the law, and and uh, you know we accept that the the function of the law is to ensure, as we've said, the dignity of of all. Then, for some to try to squirrel away or to, I don't know, I'm not sure how much I how much I want to articulate because I'm I'm not clear on my own thoughts and all of that stuff, but. As far as these principles go, I think that they, they're, I mean, they make sense. I am not, you know, I agree. And, and you see how all of this is rooted in the city of responsibility that like yeah. what I own, mm -hmm. me being responsible for my private property means mm -hmm. that um, I don't hoard excess, that I actually distribute it um, because I'm responsible to everybody else my community yeah and i think the key the key thing is in this discussion is um where where it goes wrong is one when the government comes in and mandates what your limits are as opposed to allowing some of that gray area and then the other is when we kind of do that to each other or to certain figures and point at them it's like you should never and um it's interesting, I do think, when the young man does come to Christ and he says, what should I do to be saved? And he says, well, sell everything, come follow me. Um, if what you're expressing is an interest in joining my my following, that's, that, you know, in an immediate sense, that is what it takes. And he leaves and the Lord's sad because he loved him, but lets him go. Now, Jesus is asking more of the rich young man than what the church is articulating here, too. Jesus said, sell everything. The church isn't asking us to sell everything. Right, right. If you the want to be perfect, is, I think the, he said, or something, I come and sell everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially so if you're going to be part of that inner circle of 12, not just a disciple, you know, and that young man was asking, I want to see it at that table, you know, with the 12. It's like, wow, what you're going to be asked is harder than what Peter had to do. Peter's had to leave fishing nets. I mean, maybe it was a thriving fishing business. <laughs> That's nothing compared to the rich young man. Yeah. And, and there's, um, there's, okay, there's some limits and there's, and there's some boundaries here too, right? Mm -hmm. So, so the church is saying the state can't enforce private charity, right? So if we, so if charity is what comes after justice, when I give, um, from 
the resources I need um, uh, from those first two tiers of wealth, right? Mm -hmm. From what I need to live and then what I need to live for my state in life and my vocation. If I give from like that second tier in a way where mm -hmm. I have to sacrifice something, that's charity. And, and the church is not saying the government can or should require charity. Right. It's saying that the government has a responsibility um, out of justice mm -hmm. to redistribute excess wealth for the sake so of it, the common good. Is it fair then to say that government qua government is not in the business of charity because charity is rooted in a free choice and individuals free choice to give maybe more than than their you know what they have or out of their excess I, I think i would agree with that but i think that part of the part of it's complicated by how we use charity so like the mm -hmm. u.s government giving money to a developing country or for like disaster relief after a hurricane to haiti right like that's not charity i mean that's justice that's a wealthy nation giving to a nation that's like um in a really desperate, desperate situation. Yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't call that charity, but we would normally call that government charity in, in the mm -hmm. way that we talk. Um, okay. But yeah, the government is not and should not be in the business of mandating individual charity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, another limit too here is the church says that we do have a right to private property. So abolishing private property is a bridge too far for mm -hmm. the government. Um, so the church isn't saying that either. And the church isn't even saying that the government needs to, mm, the church also isn't saying that everyone needs to have the same amount. It's just saying right. everyone needs to have that minimum amount. Mm -hmm. So if you have more than that and everyone, if everyone has enough and you have more than enough, mm -hmm. well, like. So one thing I'm hearing then is not so much we need good government to come in and audit everybody and and you know send an auditor once a year to ensure how much excess do you have what's your excess bonus whatever it's more sounds like it's saying how are you relating to the community you have influence with or the community you're connected to and how are you uh, interacting with that being responsible for and with that i would say it's less about the government making sure it's less about the government making sure that um nobody has access and more about the government making sure that everybody has enough. Right. Um, which which means governing and redistributing excess. Mm -hmm. But the focus is not on, on you know, uh, is not on a punitive, you have excess. Right. It's on a, everyone has the right to, that minimum right is what they need to survive. Mm -hmm. So we need to take whatever we need and redistribute that to them. Yeah, that's that, definitely not going to fly with one party. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but does that focus make sense? It's not about policing all right. excess wealth. It's about right. guaranteeing uh, minimal um, mm -hmm. resources for people. No, and, and I agree. I'm not arguing with that. It's um, I think what, what I'm hearing is, yes, there's the focus on the government and the justice side, but there's also this focus on those who have. Uh, it, it is a call for everybody to look at their relationship with their, the community they're attached to, the community they're defined by, they're in relationship with, and how they can then choose to act. 
Yeah, uh, and, and that's something that we'll talk about. Then the next principle that we're talking about is subsidiarity. And if the okay. common good's about responsibility, subsidiarity is about participation. And this idea of like, um, this idea of a preference for the local. Um, okay. So yeah, so there's an element there where our response, we our responsibility. Mm -hmm. There's a preferential option for the local in that yeah. as well. And there's also, and we'll talk about later when we talk about solidarity, there's also a preferential option for the most vulnerable um, as well. Yeah. Um, okay. I forgot the third element. So the third element, the gagism says of the common good, is that the common good requires that those in authority guarantee by morally acceptable means and not by any means necessary, but by moral means, the just ordering um, security and stability of a society, right? So that means like um, having uh, having self-defense, um, having uh, police force, um, you know, having it so that if you travel from one town to another, you're not going to get, you know, mugged, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Security and stability. That's a part of the common good. Um, so out of what we covered today, what's a good wrapping up point or a practical uh, takeaway then? Yeah, I think of um, as baptized Christians, as people who are not just followers of Christ, but who are called to be other Christ. Like that's what Christ is. We've talked about this is theosis. We're, grace has made us other Christ. Baptism has made us other Christ. Our lives ought to look different than the unbaptized. And at least in the American church, um, we get that when it comes to sexual morality, right? Our, our sexual behavior ought to look different, right? But we don't have that emphasis when it comes to our economic behavior. But that's just as true. Mm -hmm. um, you look at the moral teachings of the church and you, you look at the things Jesus talks about, like what you do with your money is really important. Um, so our lives ought to look different. And I think they ought to look different in one way, precisely because we actually believe in God. And that belief in God should shape our behavior. So like, what do I mean by this? Um, mm -hmm. There's a, um, I was listening to um, uh, uh, a podcast Bible study on the book of Exodus from the Bible Project. And they were walking through the book of Exodus. And, and they got to the scene in the story. This is right after the crossing. Well, during the crossing of the Red Sea. And immediately when they go into the desert, before they reach Mount Sinai. They're like, this is a period of testing where God is testing his people. And, then, and the guys on this podcast, they're talking and they're like, so... Sometimes when we think of God testing his people, we think of like a scientist with a whole bunch of lab rats in a, in a maze. Like that's not, that would be bad testing. <laughs> that's not the kind of testing. Right. Rather it's testing in the sense of like God is shaping his people to be the kind of people um, that looks like him, right? A kind of people that actually, that their behavior follows from their belief. So the first test is the crossing of the Red Sea. So we have this scene where God leads his people to the bank of the Red Sea, out of Egypt to the bank of the Red Sea. Ahead of them is the Red Sea, and behind them is Pharaoh's army that's barreling down towards them. 
all of Pharaoh's horses and all of his chariots. And the people cry out to Moses and they say, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to send us out in, into the desert to die? And Moses says, God will save you. You have only to be still. That was their test. All they had to do was to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And like the very next verse, God parts the Red Sea. He makes a way where there was no way and saves his people. That's the first test. God says, do nothing. Trust me. So then um, the, the water from the rock is the next test. God's people cry out with some you know, snarky comment about not having water and all this stuff. So what does God do? He gives them a, a miracle, water from a rock. Then after that is manna. And the Lord kind of like develops his testing a little bit, goes a little bit deeper with his people. They complain about food. Like we had enough food in Egypt, but you brought us out into the desert, blah, blah, blah. So God says, I will give you food every morning. You have this miracle bread manna that comes down every morning. And he commands every family to gather what they need and no more for mm -hmm. that day. So some it says in the in the book of Exodus, some gathered more, some gathered less, everyone had what they needed. And and then it said some of them gathered extra to save for the next day. And what happened to that extra? It rotted and got full of maggots. And Moses got angry and chewed those people out. What God is saying is not only that you can, you can trust me to provide, but actually I want you to trust me every single day to provide. That all I'm asking you to do is gather what you need for today and to trust that I will provide for you for tomorrow what you need for tomorrow. And if you do that, everyone will have enough. As Christians, we should very clearly hear echoings of the Our Father prayer in here. Give us this day not our lifetime of bread, but well, our daily week's ration. Yeah. But today's bread. Give me today yeah. what I need to survive today. And let me trust in you for what I need tomorrow. This is the kind of people God is, God is shaping the Israelites to be. Mm -hmm. Now, they did not have the grace of Jesus Christ. We do. And we hear, again, the Our Father prayer, but Jesus' teachings on providence and trusting in the Lord, all of this stuff, we actually have the capacity, by grace, to allow grace to transform us, to make our minds and hearts like the mind and heart of Jesus, so that we can actually live this out. What we're being called to as Christians is to take just what we need for today. Mm -hmm. Um uh, there's a writing from, and I, I may have shared this before on an earlier episode, but there's a writing from Dorothy Day where she uses the word precarity to talk about um, the Christian life. Mm -hmm. And this, this word precarity is related to the word, word precarious, risky, right? And she's talking about how the virtue of, or the not, not the virtue, but the, um, the vow of poverty that religious make that's really mm -hmm. rooted in precarity. The heart of poverty is this total reliance on God's providence, okay? But there's there's other things in here, right? Like life is precarious, period. Now, we have a choice. We can spend our life 
um, trying to protect ourselves from life's precarity. And maybe we can protect ourselves a little, but really that's ultimately futile, right? I can have all the money in the world and get cancer tomorrow. And I can get all, I can have all the money in the world and get in a car accident tomorrow. I can get all the money in the world, all the best doctors and die of a heart attack tomorrow. Or my, or my kid can die or my spouse can die or I can be crippled or any of these things, right? Mm -hmm. Life is precarious, period. So we can spend our life, and this is modern culture, spend your life being as comfortable and having the illusion of security. Or as Christians, spend your life knowing that life is precarious and trusting in the Lord and being faithful and having integrity to what he asks us to do. Yeah. The first option is full of fear. It's driven entirely by fear. This grasping at everything I can to protect myself, to have the illusion of security. But the other life is free. It's totally free. God's gonna take care of me. Now that doesn't mean this isn't the prosperity gospel, right? Mm -hmm. But it's free because it's not driven by this fear um, to have right. the illusion of security. Yeah, we're, we're taking ourselves off the board game that is most of modern culture. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, there's a show called Vanity Fair. My wife and I joke about it sometimes. Yeah. It's an old novel and it was probably turned into a couple of different movies um but we saw the most recent one and one of the motifs for it is a it's a small carousel and all the main characters are riding on the ponies and they're going up and down and they're spinning in place and they're going in place and the, the whole point of the story is the characters get up to crazy painful cyclical situations and they just keep diving back into it like scripture says the dog returns to its vomit and they don't stop and there are a couple of characters who disengage and who get off the merry-go-round yeah. And start to experience that freedom and i think that's what saint francis started to discover uh and his dedication to this the spirit of precarity and poverty um or i spoke with uh like there's a mother uh superior who lives in new york i think they're the poor clares i think and i think part of what they do is they don't make an income they live exclusively that that lifestyle of complete and total dependence and they wait for their community to provide for them and they have never lacked and I'm sitting here working a day job and I'm wondering what, what am I doing wrong? I don't, to follow up to your point, I guess, about this and like, you know, they're in the, the, the desert and following Moses and so on with all of this testing. I don't think initially it's ever going to be easy and you're meant to love it. It's, it's painful and it's hard and we reject a lot of it. And I think that's okay. And it's okay to be, uh, there's a sense of fear that's attendant to that. We have to, We'll work through that, learn to get comfortable with what is happening is learning to live a different kind of life. And there might come a point where you can then learn to love what this now means in terms of this freedom from here, this side of this new life. It, it looks like death and fear and, you know, yeah. but we can see there are people around us who are already living it uh, and they're a lot happier than we would want them to be. Because ultimately, at the heart of this, like we talked about how some of these teachings, if you have excess wealth, they sting. But it's still good news for you. 
because it's this, it's the saying you can live from a place of freedom, mm-hmm. not from a place of needing to have this wealth, to feel secure, mm-hmm. to feel desired, to feel like you have a place, to feel like mm-hmm. you're loved, whatever. It's saying the Lord is saying you can have freedom from that. If God is as good as he says that he is, if you believe that God is as good as he says that he is, mm-hmm. you can have freedom from this fear that drives all of all of this accumulation of stuff, this mm-hmm. this carousel that we're on, that everyone's miserable on. The Lord is offering us a better life. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great place to wrap. I'd like to take a moment and we'll thank our our sponsor because they're also trying to help a certain group of people uh, live a better life. Um, Select to Give is a international travel. Uh, and pilgrimage company. Um, more Catholic leaders have chosen them over many other pilgrimage companies. They have 35 years of award-winning travel planning and a track record of excellence and faithfulness. They're a small company with a big heart because every one of their pilgrimage trips helps to support and fund their 501c3 charity work, helping Christian families to thrive in the Holy Land. So if you're ready to travel or if you're looking to lead a group of your own, take the next step on your pilgrimage by visiting Select International Tours. Dot com. Uh, if you appreciated this video, if you struggle with this video, go ahead, hit that like button. Well, if you enjoy the video, you want to hit that um, uh, so that more people can can hear about this show, hear about what uh, Paul is sharing. This show is brought to you by Smart Catholics, the online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations, unafraid of doubts and questions. And if that sounds like you, come and check us out at smartcatholics.com. Paul, if our friends have a question or some feedback, where can they go? Yeah, you can find me on uh, on PopeFrancisGeneration.com. I mean, this show is uh, it's brought to you by Pope Francis Generation, which is uh, my project to explore and talk about um, and really dive into um, a Catholicism that uh, is, in, is inspired by Pope Francis, is inspired by um, the, I mean, our, our three pillars, the Kerygma and Theosis. Um, yeah, if, if you go to Pope Francis generation, um, you can join, follow the newsletter, you can follow the uh, podcast there. I have other projects and things that I work on. Um, you can support me financially there. Um, as we've just talked about, uh, having to get rid of all of your excess wealth, um, you know, you can choose to funnel some of that, some of that this way, if you decide, (laughs) but um, help Paul have the option to have a little excess wealth. <laughs> he could choose what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, your support allows me to keep keep doing these projects and support a family, so it's really appreciated. Wonderful. Till next time, friends. Say a short prayer for yourself and for us, and remember: don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you.